Welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, the latest on shares, markets and investments, now available on your Amazon Alexa. Hello and welcome to the UK Investor Magazine podcast, now also available on the UK Investor Magazine mobile app. For today's podcast, we're going to be taking a deep dive into a London listed investment trust focused on Vietnam in Vietnam holding. We're going to be looking at the wider market, the equity market and the economy out there in Vietnam. And we're going to be paying particular attention to ESG. And to do that, we're very kindly joined once more by Craig Martin, who is the chair of Dining Capital, the manager of the Vietnam Holding Investment Trust. Craig, very much welcoming you to the podcast this morning. Thank you very much. Great to be with you again, Jonathan. So as I outlined, Craig, we're going to be speaking about the the trust, where you are now. We're going to be looking at some of the holdings. We're going to be looking at the wider market. But to start with, I did mention that we're going to be discussing ESG. So that's going to be the first topic that we get stuck into this morning, Craig. Now, I believe that very recently, Vietnam Holdings sponsored the inaugural ESG investor conference over in Vietnam. So it would be good to hear how that went. And also, what does it look like on the ground in, in Vietnam in terms of ESG? It would be good to hear about the types of companies that are involved and, and what the general perception is and, and general activities of your everyday company that you may be looking at within the trust and, and what they're doing for ESG. Sure. Well, look, firstly, we we were really surprised at how well the conference was received locally. It was over two days. We had more than 350 participants joining, many of them local companies, service providers in Vietnam, as as well as international investors. And I think probably a few key takeaways were that, look, it's still early days and everyone's on a journey. Our portfolio companies and the companies in Vietnam are still on on a journey. And our message, we we had the privilege of kicking it off with a keynote, and our message was it's all about doing more, measuring more, and then reporting more. Uh, So just focusing everyone's uh, activities uh, and efforts, rather, on activities that, you know, can can meaningfully be impacted over the, you know, three to five year horizon. So uh, we were delighted when some of the companies on the stage actually thanked Vietnam Holding, even though we're a small investor in some of these companies. They recognized what uh, we've done at, at Dynam, what the team have done to really engage with them and to help them uh, understand you know, the changing world of, uh, of responsible investing. And I think many of them are getting it, particularly, and one of the key things that came through was, not surprisingly, about the E in ESG, the environment. You know, Vietnam is very aware of um, changes in the environment, even this year, because of you know, high temperatures and perhaps impact from El Nino there are going to be probably some disruptions to electricity supply because water levels will be lower and Vietnam's got a very large hydropower uh, supply base. So that's impacted. And I think people generally are looking more about you know reducing plastic waste. A couple of years ago, the, the government committed Vietnam to net zero by 2050. And just two weeks before the conference, uh, the Vietnamese government released uh, a new energy plan. It's called PDP-8. Uh, it's the Power Development Plan, and it sets forth what the government's ambitions are to change the energy mix so that by 2050, Vietnam will be net zero and, uh, and not reliant on coal, whereas at the moment, it's reliant on hydro, and that's impacted by climate and temperature. Um, it's also heavily reliant on coal, and obviously that's bad from a, a carbon emission perspective. 
but the government's really been pushing on the renewable front. So I think one of the themes that came through were the tremendous opportunities, but also the challenges of how do you, you know, add 200 gigawatts of new renewable energy over the next um, couple of decades in Vietnam and what that means. But for me, I think the takeaway was many of the Vietnamese companies and particularly some of the younger companies that might be the rising stars of tomorrow, their CEOs, many of whom are female, are really grasping the opportunity and trying to um, make their businesses have a lower carbon impact and yet not sacrifice growth and and profitability. It's a very difficult balance. You know, Vietnam is such a growth uh, economy. Uh, It's a modern industrializing country. Uh, It's the export hub for for much of the world. So it does need energy. And unfortunately, at the short term, that's going to come from probably traditional sources, uh, coal and gas. But the government is really trying to shift it much more to a lower carbon, cleaner, renewable energy basis. And that was one of the key things that came through the, the conference over those two days. So, Craig, I'd argue that we saw probably three or four years ago, maybe five years now, that we saw a watershed moment in ESG. We saw a big move towards ESG among asset managers and investment managers. We we saw companies uh, putting out statements for the first time on a, on a, on a wide basis. Uh, of course, that the government's been involved and, and we see all of the stakeholders moving in unison do you feel that that watershed moment has been met in, in Vietnam yet? And, and maybe was this event a, a representation of, of that? Look, it's a great question. I, th- I think certainly the event for Vietnam was was a marker in the ground. You know, the inaugural conference and Vietnam holding in Dainan, we're very proud to be part of bringing that to, to, to fruition in the country. But you raise a very good point. I mean, globally, ESG investing has really grown rapidly in recent years and in the last seven years, I think globally, there's something like seven and a half trillion dollars in ESG assets. That's doubled in seven years. Um, and, you know, that level could hit 33 trillion within another two or three years. And that would mean that kind of ESG technically makes up more than the fifth of total institutional kind of assets under management within a few years. And so there is, is there's that's both a transition point, but there, there is obviously a lot of skepticism globally and people are pushing back a little bit they're saying there's greenwashing so i think for vietnam it's the early stage of that journey and it's companies having to report more so they are looking to measure their carbon footprint which we've been doing for a number of years but they are increasingly you know if you look at the the s in esg it's about your staff your suppliers and your stakeholders each of those are much more exposed to what's happening um in, in ESG in Vietnam. So yes, the environment that I've mentioned and the move to renewable energy, the climate risk, you know, the rivers, Vietnam is still, you know, a large, you know, it's got a big agricultural base. So that is susceptible to changes in climate, changes in sea level around that. And then also, I think on the G in ESG, the governance um, over the last few years, Vietnam Holding and Dynam Capital as its manager has really been pushing on, on the governance front. Um, my business partner Tin set up the co-founded the Vietnam Institute of Directors so we've been trying to encourage people around having better boards better training and reporting on that and Vietnam actually in the last year has seen the the kind of negative side of bad governance uh, where there've been some issues in a few companies in the stock market 
There's been arrests of people abusing their market positions in the bond market and in the real estate market. So I think these things are all kind of front of center. So I think the timing is is right. The timing is right on the climate adjustments to get to net zero by 2050. People are, are much more aware uh, as a society through social media and everyone in Vietnam is social media connected. There's more than 72 million kind of Facebook accounts in Vietnam about the environment, about the need to reduce plastic waste. And then add on to that the kind of changes needed in, in governance to see the country develop, uh, but on a you know fairly more equitable uh basis for, for people in Vietnam. So yeah, the timing is right. It's still early though. <clears throat> We're lucky our 10 in our top 10 companies in our portfolio, many of them are leaders now in Vietnam in ESG. And we're delighted to have had a role to play with that. But there are 1600, 1600 public companies in Vietnam, and the majority of them aren't as active uh, as a responsible investor or following ESG. So there's a lot of work still to go. So it's it's early days. It's a journey. And we're very pleased and proud to be helping our portfolio companies on that journey. Thank you, Craig. That, that's fascinating and certainly a story that we will continue to monitor. So we're going to move on now to Vietnamese equities, Craig. So last year, there's no two ways about it. It, it was a bad year for Asian equities, and that does include the Vietnamese indices as well. But this year, much better looking here at the Vietnamese indices overnight looking like they're closing near the highest points so far in 2023 so what's been the the main driver in this rally so far this year Craig well look put simply I think it's been a return in domestic confidence so last year part of the decline was everyone nervous what was happening in the world globally you know with the war in in Ukraine and uh, thoughts of recession in many developed countries and cost of living and energy price volatility. So there was that kind of global fear. And then domestically in Vietnam, as I alluded to, there were issues in the real estate market and in the bond market, and that spooked local investors. Uh, and when you know, deposit rates were edging up to 10% in Vietnam, they're putting money on deposit, they're pulling out, out of the stock market. And the domestic investors probably account for maybe 90% of the daily activity in the stock market. So they're a significant driving force in the Vietnam equity story. And so when you add that significant volume of domestic investors plus fear, local and global concerns, it was a pretty um, uh, torrid time for equity uh, market investors like ourselves. Then into this year, um, certainly in the last few months, we've seen domestic confidence start to rebound a little bit. Uh, we've seen the macro picture in Vietnam be robust, despite kind of global concerns that persist on recession. Uh, record levels of trade surplus, even though kind of exports have been down a bit in Vietnam. Inflation seems to be well under control in Vietnam. The currency is pretty stable. The government's been proactive and interest rates have been lowered. So it gives an incentive for people maybe to move money out. You only get 6 or 7% on deposit now. So maybe you put some of that back into the stock market. And we've seen the daily liquidities treble um, in, in the last you know, couple of quarters. So I think it's it's a domestic confidence uh, returning. Um, and so people are you know looking forward to the year. Also, stocks are relatively cheap in Vietnam. And they're, they've been at historic levels. The end of last year, in the sell-off, they went to pretty much historically low valuations, particularly on price earnings 
and for the banks on a price to book basis, they've rallied a little bit. They're up, you know, 30, 40%, but they're still cheap. And we're still in a market that's got growth. So our portfolio, for example, is on a a price earnings of, of less than 10 times, so single digit PE, and yet an earnings per share growth of more than 20% for our portfolio. The market's probably 10 to 12%, but we've got a couple of companies that are going to print very high levels of growth this year. So I think some of that good news comes through to the market. Um, it takes a while for the you know, real estate market to recover from last year's woes. It takes a while for the bond market to recover, but you know, the government's saying all the right things and starting to do the right things. And then we're seeing a lot more domestic, uh, domestic infrastructure expenditure, which provides you know, opportunities for you know, business to business companies and construction companies, maybe. And so I, you know, I think the mood's started to, to change. So this year, you know, year to date, the market's probably up 13 percent. We're outperforming the market as the fund um, and sticking to our you know, our core business of a concentrated portfolio of 20 to 30 companies. And you know, we're seeing that, you know, the markets move more favorably than they did last year. And I think foreign investors are starting to look back at the market again as well. So when you have resurgent domestic interest and then the foreigners start to come in, uh, it probably provides a little bit of a, of a buoyancy to the market. So a lot better at this kind of halfway point in this calendar year than we were at the end of last year. And we're going to be discussing some of those companies that, that you mentioned there, Craig, a little bit, a little bit later on in the, in the podcast. But before we do that, I just want to touch on the classification of, of Vietnam. And I believe around June, MSCI, the indexing company that sets out indices, including the emerging markets, frontier, developed uh, markets, uh, are, let, are set to do their adjustments in, in June. Um Looks like South Korea is front and center for a promotion to the developed market out of out of emerging market. Of course, that's one of the biggest players in in emerging markets. But it is something that we we've discussed ourselves between us, Craig, on a podcast and and presentations previously. That Vietnam is is high on the list of prospects to become an emerging market and move up and be promoted from a from a frontier market and it is from being in a number of meetings so far this year with emerging markets managers equity managers they've all got their eyes on vietnam and it's something that all of them that i I found quite striking mentions vietnam they like the companies they like the dynamics they like the demographics of of vietnam as you previously outlined but of course as an emerging market manager they're held back from from making those investments at this point in time because it doesn't fall underneath their mandate. No. So, what what what's the update, Craig, on on Vietnam becoming an emerging market and taking that that important step to becoming an emerging market from a frontier market? Well, I think the short answer is no news. <laughs> Maybe no news is good news. <laughs> but um, look, you're right. So normally, annually, I think in June of each year, MSCI kind of release their thinking on. Yeah, the, the league adjustments, who's going up to the Premier League, who's getting relegated and what have you. Uh, you mentioned South Korea. I think it's interesting. I think South Korea is still, it's uh, an emerging market. It feels it should be a developed market. Um, and I don't think there's been any change to that status. So it's probably going to wait another year or so. Vietnam slightly at the earlier end of the of the story. It's, as you rightly say, Jonathan, it's got all the characteristics of, of an emerging 
market, its macro, its growth, the depth of the liquidity in the stock market, number of companies, all of those things. Yet it's still a frontier market because it doesn't meet all the kind of 18 criteria the MSCI quiz large institutional investors on. And the most important of those is, you know, do foreign investors have a, a totally level playing field? And there are still some restrictions, foreign ownership limits in some Vietnamese companies. Uh, and that unfortunately still makes up more than, I think, maybe 10% of the Vietnam index has these restrictions. So um, up until now, Vietnam still been in the frontier index. It's the largest single country in the frontier index. So obviously, frontier market investors have a good allocation, 30% probably to, to Vietnam. Uh, but it's not yet an emerging market. It's There's been no talk of it this year. So probably the earliest is next year. So probably June 2024 is the earliest. It could be put on the watch list. And that is we're reviewing and we think Vietnam will come into the emerging market. And then that might take another 12 months thereafter. So it's a long journey. Um, but you're right. It, it means that Vietnam is not part of the emerging market index. So those people that like the Vietnam story, maybe they've been there or, um, you know, they, they, they see the attractiveness, the inflection point of urbanization, the inflection point of economic growth um, and see how Vietnam's been developing over the last 30 years and say, right, I'm interested. It's an off market bet if they want to be substantially invested in Vietnam because it's not part of the emerging market index. So it's not holding back, doesn't impact domestic investors, uh, but there would certainly be a tremendous, I think, lift in equity values and perhaps re-ratings in Vietnam at some point in time in the future when um, the agencies say, ah, you've done everything needed, now now you get to go into the emerging market your, or your country, your companies get to be classified within the emerging market index. And there are some, you know, very large companies now in Vietnam with a level of growth. Some, even some of our portfolio companies were $100 million a decade ago in market market value. They're now, you know, a billion plus. And some Vietnamese companies are several billion dollars of market cap. Um, so probably over time, I think the emerging market index is where Vietnam should be. Uh, but it's not there yet. And so investors, I think, have to be patient, but, you know, get in early and um, I think reap the rewards uh, in the future. So, Craig, I just want to go back to the point that, that you made there. And I think it should be a good gauge of, of the, the process that uh, that Vietnam has to, to go through. You mentioned there, there's about 10% of the equities in the index, which still have that restrictions on them. Is this something that's governed by the company themselves or is this something from the regulator that, that puts restrictions on, on certain companies? It would be good to get a bit of insight into what that process looks like. No, it's, it's a very good question, Jonathan. So a few years ago, it was very unclear. Uh, and then the government a few years ago started to kind of provide a little bit more uh, boundary markers around what sectors are restricted to foreigners, what are limited to maybe 49% ownership or 30% ownership, and gave a lot more clarity and actually came out with some rules that said, look, unless we say you're in a restricted sector, you're not. And then the companies themselves, actually, for some of them, it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but it, for some companies, it's to their advantage to be deemed a local company. So some retailers, for example, as a local company, you can open as many stores as you like. And there's one company in our portfolio, Mobile World, which has been a you know category killer in several key sectors uh, of retail. And by being a local company, even though it's listed, it's 49% owned by foreigners, but it's still a local company, it can open a store a day and has been doing that happily for a decade. Whereas if it was a foreign company, 
there are more restrictions. Not Vietnam's not the only country in the world where this happens in India and other markets. You know, if you're a big Tesco's and you want to open stores, you'll probably be allowed to open one store and then the government says, right, you can open a second because they're trying to you know, protect the local domestic retailers. So in that instance, it's uh, mobile world chooses effectively that it's a local company and therefore it's capped at 49% foreign ownership. If it chooses in the future to say, well, actually, you know, um, we're we're not we don't need to open so many stores now. Um, it, it could probably adjust its its kind of classification. So some sectors obviously have a little bit more sensitivity, perhaps in telecommunications, um, those that um, perhaps are in financial services, banks. It's a thirty percent limit. So we we will anticipate these limits to be adjusted in the future. Over the decades previously, that they have been increased and and clarified. And that's one of the issues, but it's not the only issue. Uh, and some of the other points, the Vietnamese stock market is making good headway. Uh, it's improving its infrastructure. It's looking to reduce the kind of settlement period on on, on trades from uh, down to you know a couple of days, day and a half, and then kind of uh, day, daily settled. And to put in a new infrastructure later this year that might help with kind of central depository issues. So it means investors don't have to kind of pre-fund their accounts to trade. Uh, and all of these things incrementally um, make Vietnam more attractive in the eyes of the foreign investors. And, and they are the people who influence MSCI and other such agencies in, in their ratings. So um, it, it's a it's something to keep an eye on. It, it doesn't affect day-to-day business. As a foreigner, you can sometimes these premiums that you have to pay on these foreign com- on these foreign restricted companies Sometimes those premiums are zero, sometimes they're 3%, sometimes they're 7%. Um, worst case, let's say there's a company you really want to be invested in. As a foreigner, you pay a small premium. If you're holding that company over you know, three, four, five years, the fact that you paid a small premium at, at the entry point, it doesn't really matter a great deal. Um, so it just depends on your kind of time frame uh, and your patience and your appetite. Of course, of course. So we're actually going to drill down now, Craig, into the, the portfolio and we're going to be looking at some of the changes you've made to your holdings. So let's start off with, you know, what, what are the big companies or, or, or big moves, most exciting prospects that you've added to the to the portfolio in recent times? Well, look, we're a very, we're an active investor. We have a high active weight in our portfolio. Uh, we're not the index; we're index aware, but we, we're just trying to find you know good good bottom up companies in, in the key sectors we see. But we're not idle; we're, we're a nimble investor. We're helped in that by our size. We're about a, a hundred and fifty million dollars of, of value. We we can be nimble from the small, the medium, and the large companies, um, and so we have a conviction led approach. So some sectors and some companies conviction improves increases, we add more to it. So as you look at our portfolio, there's certainly many very familiar names that have been there for quite some time. FPT, our number one company, keeps compounding at 20 to 30% per annum uh, as a digital champion in Vietnam, in outsourcing, in telecommunications, even in broadband and pay TV. So, um, you know, we find that a very, still a very compelling story as Vietnam industrializes and continues to digitalize. Um, so that's been our number one position for quite some time. We've got about 30% of the portfolio in banks, which is as much as we're allowed to have by our, uh, the way we set our investment policy up. 
And within that, though, there are many banks to choose from. So we've been kind of um, tilting a little bit to some of the banks we really favor. And the banks have been quite cheap. So when we've been adding to those, it's been adding at relatively low uh, entry point. And we see good growth in those banks. Um, many of them have been prudent in the past. They haven't been paying lots of dividends for many years. So they've got quite prudent balance sheets. Um, and they've taken lots of provisions in the previous year. So although there's been a lot of kind of economic pain you know, as, the, as the world's been slowing down, uh, the banks, are, uh, I think, are able to withstand a lot of that, certainly the banks that we're in. And then, interestingly, we've been adding a little bit to some uh, brokerages um, in Vietnam. I think Again, we take the view that, um, that, you know, that there is a lot of domestic interest in the market, uh, and that interest is, is starting to pick up again. So we think some of those brokerages will... will Will, will benefit from that, and then we're also keen to you know find businesses that perhaps are uh, under the radar of other investors, uh, and businesses we think have got an interesting, and compelling narrative. And just one of those to mention is uh, the share uh, code is PVS. It's Petro Vietnam Technical Services, and it's a business we entered into several months ago with a, a kind of initial level of conviction because we could see it was a business in transition. It's a large, it's an operator of a large fleet of anchor hang, handling tugs, these specialized vessels that are used to erect um, oil rigs and gas rigs and all that kind of infrastructure. It's turning its skills and its assets to supporting the growing renewable energy market. I mentioned earlier PDPA, this new energy plan. Well, it calls for five gigawatts of offshore wind energy to serve Vietnam, but also to export electricity eventually in the future to other parts of Asia, including Singapore, which is a very wealthy country. And PVS, our portfolio company, is very actively positioned in that. Um, it signed a contract with a big Singapore company to help lay what could be the world's largest undersea power cable, about 800 kilometers, connecting Vietnam and its wind energy to Singapore that doesn't have any wind energy as well as being a key part of that shift um, in Vietnamese in Vietnam's energy mix to, to offshore, onshore, and nearshore wind, as well as serving other countries. So this, this little Vietnamese company has got big contracts in Taiwan. It's got contracts in Europe where it can take its fleet and its resources and its capabilities in offshore services you know, in tricky parts of the sea and laying infrastructure, a wind farm is, is has a lot of similarities to, you know, oil and gas infrastructure. So it's a company in transition. We think that's uh, laudable. Uh, and so we think that's both a good growth opportunity, a lower carbon opportunity, and a very interesting way to play the, the move to more renewable energy um, in, in a place like Vietnam. So that's just what, you know, an interesting company to keep an eye on in the future. But our portfolio, solid names in the banks, in uh, technology, in industrialization, and then you know, a couple of uh, positions we've been in in, in the retail story, uh, underpinning perhaps you know, Vietnam's continual per capita GDP growth. What's lower in our portfolio today than, say, last year is real estate. That market's gone through a lot of challenges, partly because of funding restrictions on the bond market. So we've been underweight. Uh, the real estate market for uh, several months now. Um, and so, you know, it, it's time will come again. Vietnam's urbanization is only 38%. That's where Europe was at the end of the Second World War 
where China was 20 years ago before doubling. So Vietnam will need to build more houses in the future. So it's probably something in the future that we'll, uh, we'll add back to into the portfolio. Uh, but at the moment, we're finding better opportunities in, our, in other segments um, and increasing our conviction in uh, other specific names in the portfolio that you know, we think will benefit um, in, in the, the mid-long uh, term. So, Craig, I just want to go back to a point that you made there about one of the companies obviously listed in Vietnam, but operating elsewhere within the, the region, and of course, then providing exposure to the growth stories elsewhere. I mean, in terms of the visibility that you have on, on the companies, you know, are, are there a lot of companies within the portfolio that that are yes, maybe core operations in in Vietnam, but then you know, maybe in the case of banks, for example, do they have operations in other countries? Uh, in the vicinity that then provides investors in Vietnam holding some form of exposure to the growth across the Southeast Asian economy? Well, actually, largely not. Um, the domestic market in Vietnam, the stock market is mainly focused on Vietnam. Um, yes, some of the banks have operations in Cambodia and Laos and some of the companies in the region, but there are very few global champions in Vietnam. Um, but there are a couple of uh, exceptions to that. So FPT, our number one holding, it provides digital services to Japanese banks and Fortune 500 companies. It's got operations in the US and Europe and in Japan. So that's plugged into the global market of providing high-tech technology solutions to global companies. So that's one exception. And then uh, PVS, so Petro Vietnam Technical Services, it is active, as I mentioned, in um, wind projects in Taiwan, in Poland, in other parts of the world. Um, but these are probably the exceptions rather than rule. Most of most of the Vietnamese companies, uh, most of the companies listed on the stock market in Vietnam are focused really on the, you know, the 100 million population, the domestic story, or are a part of the kind of infrastructure of the manufacturing that is the made in Vietnam for global export. But there are very few Vietnamese companies at this stage that are global in the sense that they have direct activities and presence in many, many countries. Um, there's half a dozen. Um, and that's, you know, a mark of, you know, Vietnam's still got a lo long way to go. There's a massive runway of opportunity. There's a few technology companies. Um, some of them are private. They're looking to expand. Uh, Vietnam has a uh, an electric vehicle company which is looking to set up a big factory in the US and is looking to actually get a listing, possibly even through a, a SPAC. Um, those things are still going on. Um, yep. so, so there are companies that have global ambitions, but for, for many, the, the domestic market's big enough and interestingly in, in, enough uh, in Vietnam. So, And there are some challenges. It's, you know, it's not so easy. If a company wants to open a, uh, an office in Vietnam and invest outside of Vietnam, it still needs a lot of kind of government permission to do so. So Vietnam is still uh, an emerging or a frontier market, depending on how you look at it in that regard. Uh, but there are companies that are certainly the backbone of global operations. Many global businesses have their back office, their service centers in Vietnam. So it, it's very much plugged in globally, even if many of the companies themselves aren't directly active outside of Vietnam. Thank you very much, Craig. A very comprehensive answer to my question there. So we're going to finish off now uh, with a question, and it's taking a bit of a step back here, Craig, and we're looking at the, the wider environment for investment trusts at the moment on the London Stock Exchange. And you know, many managers that I speak to this year 
They're looking at wider discounts. They may have even been seeing increasing NAVs you know, over the last year or so. Um, so nothing to do with the underlying portfolio as such. But they're seeing uh, the share price uh, ebb away slightly in some circumstances or not keep up with, with, with the NAV. And that discount is... Uh, that is increasing. Uh, you know, it, it's you know not being arm holdings. It's, it's across the, the the board. So you know, from from where you're sitting, Craig, you know, what, what are the factors at play here? What what's driving the, this shift in in discounts? And and maybe is this an, an opportunity for for investors? And is there anything that you, as the board and, and manager of the trust, can do about it? Yeah, it's it's perplexing, isn't it? So uh, we're doing yeah. everything right. Portfolios up thirty yeah. percent. Um, portfolio is cheap. Portfolio's got good growth, and yet the, the funds uh, are on a discount of you know fifteen percent to that net asset value. And it's not that there's kind of tricky, hard to value private equity stocks in our portfolio. They're all listed. They're all liquid. They're daily um, marked to value NAV, and yet the discounts are wide. And as you say, it's not just Vietnam Holding. It's across the many of these uh, London listed closed end funds. Um, so I think the only thing that the board can do, which they're very active in doing, is keeping a close watch on that. And they've got a mandate to do share buybacks. So I know the board are very active in doing share buybacks. Um, and I guess it is an opportunity that you mentioned. So you can get the growth in Vietnam in a high portfolio, high quality portfolio of listed stocks with good growth. And yet you could buy it at a 15% discount to NAV, I think, today. So I think it is an opportunity I think it's just a you know dislocation in the supply demand um, of investment trusts broadly. Maybe it's a a point that perhaps the London stock market itself as a whole has been a bit in the doldrums, um, and people looking elsewhere. And there may be other factors to to bear uh, there too. And maybe it's you know sterling goes up and goes down against the dollar, and maybe that has a flow as well. So, you know, as a manager, we um, we focus on the net asset value picking great companies, engaging with them, seeing the value in our portfolio. And then the board, who are very independent to us, similarly super focused, and their focus is on uh, you know, managing that discount. And that's done through share buybacks. It's also done every few years, uh, their tenders closer to NAV. And then every five years, investors get the, the choice to, to continue or not. So later this year will be the, fifth annu- the five annually um, continuation vote for Vietnam holding. So I think it tells investors the board take them seriously. They have their interests at heart. Um, and so, you know, in, in, in that regard, I think a 15% discount to, to NAV is a great opportunity for people to look at buying into something which has tremendous potential in one of the highest growth markets in the world. So I'd encourage people to look at Vietnam holding through that lens. Thank you very much, Craig. So um, just sort of a, a note to listeners, um, Craig and Vietnam Holding will be presenting at the Investment Trust, UK Investor Magazine Investment Trust virtual conference a little bit later on in the year. So do keep your eyes peeled for the invites when they go out. They'll be going out in the next month or so. So Craig, thank you for being on the podcast today. It's a real pleasure as always. Thank you very much. Yes, always, always a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast, Craig. And just as a final note to listeners, do check out the notes to this podcast because there'll be a link through to the Vietnam Holding website where you can get hold of that, the latest fact sheets and see some of the statistics that have been discussed today. So once more, thank you very much to everyone for listening. Bye-bye.
We hope you enjoyed listening to the UK Investor Magazine podcast. Please do share the podcast and we really value any reviews and comments you leave us in your chosen podcast player. The views presented by the hosts and guests of the UK Investor Magazine podcast are in no way investment advice. And please remember, all investment involves risk.